this next section is entitled Kedusha, Holiness. The whole thrust of the instructions given in Parashat Tetzaveh is a teaching on holiness. All right? The word Tetzaveh shares the exact same root word as mitzvah, uh, tzav. And um, the root word is an imper a verbal imperative used to express the desire for a definitive action on the part of the hearer. Go, do, act, perform. All right? That's why the portion is um, translated, you are to order. Tetzavah, you are to do. You are to command. And the word mitzvah means command. That's why they have the same root words. In other words, the Torah uses this word as a call to action. God, the invisible creator of the universe, is chosen to reveal his glory in such a way as to be visible in the Mishkan. And that's really why we are comfortable comparing the Mishkan to Yeshua. God the invisible is seen in the invisible sun. The sun is the visible presence of the invisible God. Right? So the Mishkan serves that function as well. We cannot see God. Yet the Mishkan, we can see. We can touch it. Um, God informs us that he will take up residence in the most holy place, the Kadosh Kadoshim. Um, the holy place, if you remember, housed the ark, um, the uh, place where the wings of the Keruvim, the Kruvim, the, um, the cherubim, as, the, uh, as it's written in, in English, um, the Kruvim uh, formed the lid of the Aron Kodesh, the Ark of the Covenant. And that is the place that God was um, symbolically, uh, how should we put it? I don't want to say he, he lived there, but um, his reputation was such that he was the God who um, resided between the wings of the Kerubim, the Kruvim, the Cherubim. Uh, in fact, that's a title that we'll find in, like, say, the book of Samuel. Uh, at any rate, the um, the Ark of the Covenant is the is the central focus, you could say, of the Mishkan. It's the heart of the tabernacle, and as such, you could say that the Mishkan itself um, served to bring the people close to the tabernacle, or close to the the Ark of the Covenant. And yet, the Ark of the Covenant could not be touched. Now. Um, God commands his people to become holy, that is, set apart for the specific service of conveying his holiness to the surrounding peoples. So in one sense, we the people are drawn to his holiness, drawn to the Mishkan, drawn to the Aron Kodesh, and at the same time, God in his part, for his uh, uh, covenant of responsibility, promised to impart holiness to us so that when the surrounding people groups interacted with us, they would get a glimpse of the holiness of our holy God. We are his representatives inasmuch as the Mishkan is a representative of him as well. We are to take his holiness and spread it to the surrounding nations. We are to be his witnesses. Now this is seen more fully in the ministry that Yeshua left for us after he left this earth. Talmudim, the Shlachim, the, the disciples, the sent ones, that um, they took his message and they didn't remain in Jerusalem. Rather, they took it to the other end of the earth. And that's why we have it here in the coastlands today. That's why we have it here in America and all over the world. Thank goodness that they followed the instructions like they were supposed to do. Israel also had a, a, a commission upon them, as it were. We're going to get to that commission in Deuteronomy chapter 4, but for now we see that this holiness begins with a personal consecration. In chapter 28, verses 2 and 3, and verse 36, and verse 41, in chapter 29, verse 1, 9, 20 through 22, as well as verses 26 through 37, and also 43, this personal consecration, it starts with an individual. 
God says, be holy. And God says to the priests, be holy. And God says to the people, be holy. And God says to the priests, be holy. And God says to the people, yeah, why am I going round and round? Because we're all in this together. Some people get the idea that it was the priests who had to be holy, but the people could be mundane or ordinary. Not so. All of us were commanded to be holy. Hashem's holiness would not always be confined to Israel, in a sense that exclusivity was Israel's alone. For now, however, Israel was the primary focus of his glory. Um, the nation of Israel, as it was comprised of, of Ezrach, native-born, and the Ger, who was grafted into Israel. Um, but for now, it was, a, um, it was a family affair, and it seemed like the, the surrounding nations wouldn't get it. We know that ultimately they will get it. However, for now, uh, we're just seeing the smaller picture. The bigger picture will unfold as we read the uh, later writings. Hashem has always, since the promise given to Abraham in Bereshit 12, verses 1 through 3, Hashem has always, this is why I mentioned all what I said earlier about the Gentiles and Jews, Hashem has always been interested in blessing all of the families of the earth. The Gentiles are not plan B. Just get it out of your head. The church is not the Johnny-come-lately. The church was always, or I use the word church there, but you know what I mean. I mean the, the grafted in Gentiles, which, of which the church seems to com largely be comprised of. Although, in reality, the church is remnant Israel. I know some of you listening to my podcast are going to try and correct me. No, 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 no. The church is, in fact, remnant Israel, which is comprised of Jews and Gentiles. However, um, historically, the church sees themselves as Gentiles, and as such, um, they are not plan B. They are not an addition to Israel in that sense that they... I'm sorry, they're not a replacement of Israel in the sense that they come along and Israel gets displaced. Um, nor are they a separate entity from Israel. They're not dispensational, um, dispensationally placed in history so as to say that Israel existed and then the church now exists and then somehow maybe Israel will be brought back into existence. That doesn't work either. Both of those are ditches that we want to avoid. Both dispensationalism on one side and supersessionism on the other side. No. God has already promised that he would bless all the families of the earth, and this he would accomplish through the nation of Israel. Okay, He started with one man, Abraham, and now he is establishing the priestly line within the offspring of that one man. He's, he's singling out representatives and leaders within the group. Ironically, the ultimate focal point of Hashem's glory would culminate in one man. Isn't that neat? He starts with one man, he builds a family, he builds a nation, he builds a people, he grafts in some people, and then he culminates it in one man. All right. Holiness, if you'll recall, permeates the entire theme surrounding the Mishkan and the uh, priestly functions. It's all about holiness. The golden breastplate containing the twelve precious stones, which represented the twelve tribes of Israel, spoke of the chosenness of the offspring of Abraham. God chose Abraham's offspring for a purpose. Yes, chosenness implies a, uh, a function and a purpose. God didn't choose them because they were the largest, the prettiest, the smartest, or uh, the most uh, uh, adept in what they were doing. No. In fact, they were the least. And yet God set his affection on um, Abraham and his offspring. Holy and set apart, they were to perform the task of what? Demonstrating the holiness of the Holy One, the one true God of the universe. That's our call, people. That's why Israel was chosen. Yeah, you've heard church people talk about the chosen people. Israel is the chosen people. 
yeah, guess what? The grafted in ones are equally chosen. Okay? Jews and Gentiles are chosen from the surrounding nations brought into one family, Israel, for the express purpose of what? Demonstrating the holiness of our Holy Father. That's our purpose. We're all chosen, and yet we don't all answer the call. That's the shame. Special in the fact that Hashem placed the stones, talking about the breastplate, special in the fact that Hashem placed the stones close to the heart of the priest who wore the breastplate. Hashem wanted each and each man and each woman in Israel to know that they were created to fellowship with their Creator, and that there was a unique way in which they were to demonstrate this fellowship. Israel's chosenness was a picture of this fellowship to the rest of humanity. God is trying to demonstrate His holiness, not only to the surrounding peoples, but at the same time He's trying to explain to them that I am your Creator. This message goes out to everyone. I am the one who created you, and I want to be in relationship with you. I desire to have a relationship with you. I didn't just create you and send you off on your own, kick you out of the garden to go fend for yourself, and hope that you're going to make it. No. God loves us, and in His intense love for us, He continues to reach out for us and to us, and in His reaching out to us, He did this through Israel. Yes, people, catch this. God was reaching out to the surrounding nations through His nation of Israel. In fact, the rabbis comment on this, and they talk about how that when the Romans destroyed the temple, the Bet HaMikdash, in the 70 A.D., they comment that if the surrounding nations realized that God was reaching out to them through the Bet HaMikdash, then they would not have destroyed it. If they would have realized that God was providing atonement for them through the temple, they would not have destroyed it. Isn't that powerful? Yeah. I don't know where that rabbinic quote is found. When I find it, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the address, but I just remember it in my studies. Let's move on into our parasha. We've got the mysterious Urim and Tumim. Or I think your version says the, the Urim and the Tumim. Or something like that. The Urim and the Tumim, they were divining stones. Um, a, lot of, a lot of mystery surrounding these two stones. I wish I could do a little more study on them. But we know that they were set in the breastplate for the purpose of making judgments among the tribes of Israel. Um, how would this work? Well, as best as we can tell, Hashem would supernaturally illuminate a specific stone uh, on the breastplate in conjunction with the ruling in question. For instance, the high priest would make a ruling, and in a sense he would cast the lots using the Urim and the Tumim. If you remember, the lots themselves were also used in this fashion. The, the, the uh, high priest would make a decision, and he would say, if this stone lights up, then this, this decision is, is valid, and if this stone doesn't light up, then this isn't a valid decision, and he would continue until he got God's approval. It's almost like saying, and please pardon the crude analogy, but it's almost like saying, okay, you know, at the Super Bowl when we toss the coin to see which team goes first, it's a 50-50 decision, and so one team calls it, and whichever team calls it and gets it right, that's the team that goes first. It's the coin toss. Well, in a sense, that's what the Urim and the Tumim were doing, and they were divining stones. The priest would then make his judgment, or Hashem's judgment known, after he got the answer from the um, the corresponding or the uh, aff affirming um, lights, whichever would light up. Um, as the Talmud does testify, and I don't have the address, but um, just trust me on this one, the Talmud testifies that this speaks to us of the ruling function that the priestly line enjoyed as well. The priests were rulers of the people. Um, 
they were Torah teachers to be sure, but they also functioned as judges in some cases. All of these specifics pointed to what? The exclusivity of the power and the position of, you guessed it, Messiah Yeshua. Our Messiah was also to walk in the specific offices and ministries that the priests demonstrated. And only the Messiah to come, the ultimate Kohen of the heavenly order, would be able to administer ultimate judgment and atonement for the sins of the entire world. Yes, people, Yeshua judges all men. And because he is the judge, one day we will face him. And we will have to ask ourselves, did we uh, believe in your office? Did we believe in your ministry? Did we allow you to speak into our lives? Every man will stand before the judge one day. And therefore, we see that our high priest stands uh, in judgment of us. He, is, um, he functions in the same way that the priest did. He has that judgment power. He has that, that, that authority to do so. And no other high priest would just do. Right? Just as Aharon and his sons were the only ones permitted to enter the Kadosh Kadoshim, the holy places, so our high priest Yeshua was the only one able to approach the holy place that's in heaven. He's the one who approached the throne of the Father and brought the um, sins and the concerns of the people to the Father. Speaking of that, let's move into a theme of drawing near. Okay, This next section is entitled Drawing Near. In chapter 29 of our parasha, um, we catch a glimpse of the importance of blood sacrifice. Oh yes, it gets bloody here, people. The book of Leviticus is all about blood. Blood, blood, blood. And we will ask ourselves, why such a bloody covenant? Well, we're going to find out. Our God is a God of covenants. He doesn't do anything outside of covenants. Anyone wishing to approach God must reckon with God's covenants. If you're not in covenant with God, then you cannot be found. There's no place for you. Ultimately, God is going to, to ask each and every man who has ever lived, Are you in covenant with me? Do I know you? And if the answer is no, well then watch out. There's no place for you. It's a bad place to be, people. Get yourself into covenant. His covenants are ratified with the shedding of blood. That's the way it's done. The old Christian hymnal says it all. There's power in the blood. Actually, the reason that there's power in the blood is because the Torah explicitly teaches that there is life in the blood. It's not merely the blood itself. It's that the blood carries the life of the creature, the individual. The Torah paints a picture in chapter 29, verses 10 through 45, that an acceptable sacrifice sanctifies both the altar and the person who touches the altar. You can find that in verse 29, I'm sorry, in chapter 29, verse 37. Let me just read that for you. Uh, verse 37, quote, Seven days you will make atonement on the altar and consecrate it. Thus, the altar will be especially holy, and whatever touches the altar will become holy. Now, the sacrifice served an important function in the life of the average Israelite. I think sometimes that in our church circles we lose uh, sight or appreciation of the functions and the roles of the sacrifice because, again, of that principle that he talked about earlier, we seem to eclipse the earthly by this by the heavenly. Yeshua's sacrifice seems to eclipse the earthly sacrifices. And don't get me wrong, in a sense, they do. Um, and they should. Uh, the, the earthly are shadows and Yeshua's is a heavenly reality. However, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, we read, quote, But now you who were once far off have been brought near... 
through the shedding of the Messiah's blood, end quote. That's Ephesians 2.13. Now, the writer of Ephesians, Rav Shaul, Apostle Paul, he's actually playing with words in the Greek and in the Hebrew. And there's a play on words in the Hebrew that I'm going to convey to you right now. In the passage um, where it says, those of you who were far off but, brought, but have now been brought near through the shedding of the Messiah's blood, it's not found in the English. Actually, it's not found in the Greek. I said it is, but it's not. It's actually found in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for sacrifice is karban. All right? Um, or korban is how we actually pronounce it. The karban is the root. Kar, uh, uh, karav is the root. And um, korban or karban is the word for sacrifice. Now the sacrifice in question here in the verse that we just read the pasuk above is undoubtedly Yeshua's own. It is his sacrifice. His was the spotless offering that was placed on God's altar for the remission of the sins of the world. We know this. In our parasha, we're told that the offerings of the morning and the evening lambs, the tamid offering, they're offered at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they would create a pleasing aroma before Hashem, because they were actually in olah, they were burnt, okay? The first offering of the day was the tamid lamb, which was placed upon the altar and burnt and sent up. And then actually what happened is throughout the day, the subsequent offerings that were to be burnt were placed on this already existing burnt offering. Um, uh, the ashes were not cleaned away just yet. They would just place all the other offerings right there. And so these offerings would be the place where Hashem would meet and speak with the people. You could say that the the uh, the um, the Shachari uh, Tamid, the, uh, the morning offering, um, began the day um, with the lamb there, and um, Hashem would, in essence, uh, open things up for people to begin meeting with him. We can read that in 29, chapter 29, verses 38 through 43. Um, moreover, verses 45 through 46 of this same chapter go on to promise that Hashem would live among his people. All right? Read last week's parasha, and you'll see um, that Hashem said that he would dwell among his people. And so they would indeed know that God was the very one who delivered them from the slavery of Egypt. So how is this related to Yeshua? Other than that he is... Um, the reality of the sacrifice as well. Here's where the wordplay comes in. The sacrifice, the korban, brought the people near Karav or Karuv to their people and it brought God near to his people. So the sacrifice brought the people near to their God and the sacrifice brought God near to his people. The sacrifice is the connecting point between God and and his people. And here's the play on words, alright? The Hebrew word translated as near in our passage above in Ephesians is karav. The word is played with, you know, I believe Paul knew this when he wrote this. We have a word play because of the word sacrifice, karban, of Yeshua. Because of the karban of Yeshua, we have been brought near karav to our holy God. So because of the karban, we have been karav. We've been brought near. There's the play on the words. Um, the sacrifice brings the worshiper near to his God. And it's proof in the words. In fact, the two Hebrew words share the exact same root word. These words are not to be confused with the Hebrew word keruv. Karav, karban, not keruv, which is translated as cherub. It's, it's actually different, um, uh, different Hebrew letters. Even though it was between the wings of the Kuruvim, the cherubim, that the glory of God was manifested, and it was the mercy seat, the cover of the ark, where the blood was splashed. So don't get confused. Sometimes the Hebrew words can be um, challenging. So um, 
I'm just bringing this up because I know those of you listening to the podcast, especially those of you who will stop and use this podcast, for instance, say, in a chat room. I know some people who might be listening to this podcast in a chat room at a future um, date. In fact, I'll just go ahead and single them out. I think it's the Coalition of Torah Observant Messianic Congregations, CTOMC. Give them a visit. Google them. Find their website. uh, Give them a listen. Tell them Rabbi Ariel sent you. The point is clear from our parasha. Our God instructed his people to offer the blood sacrifices in order that the covenant requirements might be met. Remember, God relates to us on covenants and the blood ratifies the covenants. Covenants are our key to relationship with an otherwise unapproachable holy God. It started with a sacrifice in uh, Breshit 3.21. Remember? And since then... There has existed, as it were, a scarlet thread that has run through the entire Bible. Yes, our God is a bloody God. He's a God of covenants. He's a God of blood. And thank goodness that it is. Whoever said that we, New Covenant or New Testament believers, are not under the sacrificial system anymore? Whoever said that? You ever heard somebody say that before? We're not under the sacrifices anymore. Oh, yes, we are. Of course we are. We are under the blood of the sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God. Our parasha ends with the pervading theme of the entire Mishkan and of the priestly functions. In Hebrew, it says, Kodesh Kadashim Hula Adonai. In English, it says, It is especially holy to Adonai. The closing blessing is as follows Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Torah Met Vechaye Olam Nata Batochenu. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha-Torah. Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Have a wonderful Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember... Because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua, through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at Yeshua613 at Hotmail.com That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at Hotmail.com Or visit our website at GraftedIn.com That's GraftedIn.com